The first jurors have been selected in the trial of Derek Chauvin, the police officer charged with killing George Floyd in Minneapolis last year, which sparked anti-racism protests right across the country. Canada's government launches a new task force aimed at creating gender equality in the country's economy. And should domestic flights be tax-free as a way to reboot the travel economy at home once travel restrictions are lifted? Monocle's editors are here to discuss those stories today here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Wednesday the 10th of March and I'm Thomas Lewis and with us today to discuss some of the day's big news stories are Monocle's news editor Chris Chermak and Monocle's culture editor Kiara Rimella. Kiara, Chris, great to have you both with us on a Wednesday once again here on the show. Kiara, this little slot every Wednesday has sort of become a bit of a Kiara Rimella <laughs> film review club. I don't know if you've got any more treats for us lined up this week. Uh, let me think uh, actually i i feel like um i rewatched recently um because i had watched it already over christmas and it was a treat soul by pixar i haven't seen that yet and i'm desperate to it's an absolute delight and i will say i think it's quite interesting how pixar recently has gone into a more meta and meta world but this is so extravagant and elaborate but um such a i guess just such a joy to to watch so that will be my kind of recent uh, weekend pick um and i've been working on comic a few reviews for the upcoming uh, issue and for the weekend edition of the newsletter. And I will say I'm really looking forward to watching Stray. It's a documentary about the stray dogs of Istanbul. It's a city where there's the kind of no kill, no capture policy for stray dogs. There's heaps of stray dogs. And this this documentary is a beautiful, endearing look at the, the connection that you can create with animals, what that says about kind of living outside the structures of society. You know, this time I've actually got quite up-to-date culture you know, recommendations for you. It's no longer just The Office US, uh, you know, season two. We're up to date, man. <laughs> Clueless has been put to bed by this stage. And Chris Chermak, if this is uh, usually Kiara's film review slot, then it's usually the sort of bicycle diaries from Chris Chermak, I feel. Have you been any more adventures on two wheels uh, since the last time we spoke on the show? You know, I was actually going to go into a little uh, slightly retro film because I just was watching a Bohemian Rhapsody, which uh, I had never seen before and uh, was quite eager to see because Queen was sort of my favorite sort of high school band, the first band that I got into. So I had a fun one on that. I don't really have any particular biking stories, to be perfectly honest for you, Thomas, uh, this time around, except that I do love the opportunity to come into the office uh, and into this studio when we can. It's sort of one of the things we do uh, regularly or we, you know, we do come into the office for. And my biggest enjoyment out of that is simply being able to have a cycle commute every day. <laughs> Chris Chermak's uh, Lockdown Diaries continue. Thank you very much, Chris and Chiara Romella. Great to have you both with us on the programme today. Well, in Minneapolis yesterday, the first three jurors in the trial of Derek Chauvin were selected. The former police officer, who was videoed in May last year, pushing his knee into the neck of George Floyd, an unarmed black man who died in Chauvin's custody. George Floyd's death sparked the largest wave of anti-racism protests in US history. And Kiara, to begin with you and to focus on the selection of the jury in this trial, um, how difficult is it to ensure, do you think, 
think the jury members that are selected are able to be impartial when the case they're being asked to adjudicate caused a moment of national, even international, reckoning last year. Well, it's obviously an understatement to say that it's very, very hard. And when you look at the questions that the jurors have been asked to answer on the questionnaire that they've been provided, so they've been provided with a 16-page questionnaire in order to assess whether they, the, the I guess the level of exposure that they've had to the case. Um, it's quite absurd in a way because, you know, we've all had an exposure to the case, um, no matter how much you may keep yourself secluded from the media, it's virtually impossible that you would not have had exposure to this case. And so um, one of the jurors that has already been chosen, for example, has said that he never saw the video of um, the killing itself. Um, Another juror said that uh, she's only seen the video once. I mean, these are... True exceptions when you think about it, because, you know, most people around the world would have remembered rolling news coverage of that moment. Um, It's also interesting, I think, that whilst obviously all of these jurors so far have said that they will keep an open mind and they will aim to be impartial, some of them have said that, yes, they did read media coverage of the event at the time and they did have a somewhat negative impression of the police officer in question, but that they would they would be willing to keep an open mind. So it's quite interesting that in this case, you're willing to accept that as, as a declaration of impartiality. You know, you have someone who's almost explicitly saying, yes, I do have quite a bad impression of him. But I am willing to keep an open mind because the case is, you know, so wildly well known that it's almost impossible for anybody. And and it's so divisive and charged with so much importance that it's impossible that anybody would have come in in contact with it and not have formed some degree of an opinion. So I guess the best that they can they can hope for is someone who has formed somewhat of an opinion but is willing to keep an open mind about changing it. Uh, You know, and I was thinking also about comparison with other judicial systems elsewhere. In the UK, I've been asked to do jury service in in the past and unfortunately I couldn't do it because of the pandemic. It was cancelled, but you never know what, what case you're actually going to be judging. And that's, you know, that there is a, a possibility for uh, the prosecution or the defence to, I guess, veto jurors if they have reason to believe that they wouldn't be appropriate to judging the case. But otherwise, you have no idea what you're going in for. Whilst these jurors are being, you know, explicitly questioned as, as to the specific case they're going in for. Um, and I, I wonder how different it would be if if you would have something more of a kind of UK style jury service where you do have a random selection and then you are able to veto people who you have reason to believe have disproportionate bias. But everyone in this case is going to have an opinion on on, on the case in question, I, I would have believed. And Chris, the, the scrutiny around 
this case. It's sort of hard to sort of overstate that, really, I suppose, or to articulate it in a clear way. What's your assessment of what the scrutiny of this trial, once the jury selected, once it gets underway formally, the scrutiny across the US is likely to be? How, how difficult is it to sort of anticipate that, do you think? Well, a couple of things, I think, uh, to your to your point and to Chiara's about sort of you can't overstate the 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 jurors and the the sort of to what extent they've already been watching this, as you say, in the same way you you can't really overstate um, the scrutiny that this case is going to be under. I mean, we've we've seen this in past cases uh, when it comes particularly to uh, when it comes particularly to police shootings, um, you know, there's there's always a focus, of course, both on, you know, what what actually happened in the moment that it happened, the shooting itself. And then there is this intense focus on the trial and, of course, particularly the verdict. So in that sense, I think that the key moment, of course, um, in, in this case is going to come in terms of scrutiny is really going to come at the point of that verdict and what... Uh, what comes back, uh, and that's sort of another key moment where everyone will will have to, you know, sort of decide um, just how uh, just how appropriate uh, the verdict was, um, and whether whether the jurors in that sense did a good job uh, looking at the evidence and uh, and uh, and and making the proper decision, if you will. I w- I will say just to give maybe a little story that this reminds me of uh, personally to, to talk about another case that was under huge scrutiny um, very early in my journalism career, one of the first weeks that I was a journalist, I was sent to cover the sentencing trial of Zacharias Musawi, who was known as the uh, 20th hijacker in the September 11th terrorist attacks, the one who sort of didn't get on a plane but was um, involved at the time. Um, and it really was a fascinating thing to watch in part because for the same reasons, the scrutiny was so intense. It was essentially the only trial um, that was taking place after September 11th attacks. And it was just a sentencing trial. It was basically whether Musawi would be put to death um, or whether he would get life in prison. That was all it was about. And it was just a really striking thing to watch the emotions that were involved in the case the video footage that was being shown throughout the case of the attacks of uh you know of of i remember you know things of people jumping off of buildings um those kinds of really really evocative images that were being shown to the jury and to everyone else in the courtroom and at the same time what really struck with me what what really stuck with me was that the jury actually voted uh, not to put Zacharias Musawi to death. Um, They decided there was not enough evidence of his connection um, to the terrorist attacks in order to do that. And it really was quite an interesting moment for me to, you know, as a journalist, but also to sort of see uh, the U.S. judicial system in action, if you will. And it was a case for me of, you know, intense scrutiny, Every juror, no doubt, had already an opinion on the September 11th terrorist attacks going into that trial. And yet they were able to put that aside and decide, well, in this case, this man was not involved the way that the prosecutors were making him out to be involved. So that's not to say, of course, you know, to say anything about the George Floyd case in itself. But I do, do think that it says that, you know, ideally, jurors and even our scrutiny of these cases 
we need to try and be a little bit independent of our emotions, perhaps, when we watch this. And that's, of course, what the jurors in particular are going to have to do as they evaluate this. Look at the evidence, look at what's appropriate, and not just the emotions of what they've, what they've already seen. Well, next year on The Late Edition, Canada has unveiled a new task force aimed at boosting gender parity in the country's economy as the economic recovery plans of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government continue to take shape. That's ahead of a budget announcement which is expected in the next few weeks. Well, on today's edition of The Globalist, the author and the economist Vicky Price explained the motive behind this new task force which is being led by women for women in Canada's economy. Women, not only in Canada, but actually all across the world, have ended up doing the bulk of the work at home and taking huge amount of extra stress, unable to do the hours of work that they were looking to do, at least to keep themselves going financially. So it has been a burden on women which has fallen disproportionately on them. And I think the task force is looking to see how they can ease the situation in the future so that this fall back, if you like, in terms of the, any improvements that we had in gender equality before doesn't become a permanent issue for women and affects, of course, eventually the economy, productivity, prosperity and so on. Vicky Price, the author of Women Versus Capitalism, speaking to us on The Globalist today. Kiara, as Vicky mentioned there, the economic impact that coronavirus lockdowns have had on women specifically isn't only an issue exclusive to Canada. There are similar discussions in many places and taking place in, in your home country, Italy, too, as I understand it. Yes, I wish I could say that there was um, just the same initiative being taken in Italy. It's not quite the same. Mario Draghi on International Women's Day did make a speech um, in which he acknowledged the fact that the issue of uh, gender equality had also important economic um, repercussions. And uh, and he announced what he called um, a programme called... um, towards a national strategy for gender equality. I would like to stress the words towards in that programme, in that clearly it's not even a national strategy for um, for gender equality, but just an aim, a vague direction. Um, I will say that it's something that's desperately needed in Italy and elsewhere um, for Practical reasons, obviously, um, we've talked about the disproportionate burden that the pandemic has placed on women when working from home. I think it's also important to know to notice that, and I bring here the example of Italy because this is the data set that I have available, but women do make up the majority of people who lost their jobs um, during the pandemic because of the sectors that they tend to work in. They also make up 70% of the um, cases, the contagion cases that happened on the workplace uh, in Italy, meaning again that they work the kinds of jobs that will require them to continue going into work and therefore to be subject to contagion. Um, Draghi's cabinet in itself is not gender equal. <laughs> um, and and also, and I think very importantly, already the um, rate of employment for women in Italy is below um, those of other European countries. And after the pandemic, that rate has gone down. 48% of women in Italy are in employment. And that, I think, is a setback of around four years in terms of the advancement of bringing women um, into employment. So I think this is, I think this is a, you know, a terrible problem that 
cannot be solved just with um you know places in nursery and maternal leave like yes those things are important and they are a practical solution for a practical problem but i think we have a huge cultural mountain to climb that has to be addressed continuously and i wish that um you know italy would come to a place where it's not just working towards it but it's putting it actually at the top of the agenda because these problems are affecting people right now and i think we've we've delayed tackling them for for long enough so um yes i'm i'm hoping for a national strategy in italy and beyond because again i focused here on my home country of italy because as i said you know it's where i have the data set but i i would really really be looking for this to be top of the news agenda in many different countries because these problems for women are in every single country and and beyond the our borders too and chris do you think we're going to see more governments target their economic recovery in a similar way in the months to come to try and boost the participation in a sort of rebounded economy of groups that have been hardest hit by the pandemic? Well, I think it's been interesting uh, to watch. I think this has been a topic for many governments as they go about putting money into their economies and spearheading this economic recovery. I I'd personally had focus um, on the US uh, in this case, uh, to go back, if you will, to the US, um, because, you know, there's the Today will be the day that the House passes uh, a $1.9 trillion stimulus bill for the U.S. economy uh, to help recover from the pandemic. And there are some interesting uh, aspects within that that sort of get at this uh, discussion. There was, of course, uh, last week on, the, on, the, on one side, there was you know, the removal of a minimum wage hike to uh, $15 an hour. But there are still some some interesting things in there, particularly um, actually a child benefit, uh, which I think is is worth uh, highlighting. It's essentially giving $300 per child uh, to every family as a sort of guaranteed income, which, which is being highlighted as quite a shift in thinking in the U.S. It will be for just one year, it should be said. So in that sense, it's it's being couched as a form of relief during the pandemic. But of course, the the question is, you know, after, after a year, this is something that could then become uh, a more serious policy. And, you know, for, for people who have one child or two or three, you could be talking about, uh, you know, up to $1,000 or more per month uh, coming from the U.S. government. And it's also been highlighted as something that... Um, you know, is a way of addressing poverty. Uh, one of the things that was focused on, for example, is that this will bring about half of, uh, this will cut child poverty by about half and by more than half among minority families, black families in particular. So um, it, it's sort of, a, it, it's an interesting example of something that maybe seems like a blunt instrument, if you will. It's getting it's getting at everybody. It's being given to all families um, all couples earning together less than, I think, $150,000 a year. The focus of it is going to be on the poor uh, and minorities who really were disproportionately hit by this pandemic. Um, and, you know, beyond that, if it's something that, you know, I think often in these kinds of cases, and that's something that governments will be watching as well, 
you know, something that can be a temporary measure in a crisis once implemented tends to then become something longer lasting. So it'll be interesting to see how some of these measures carry on in a year, two, three, four years from now. Well, finally, here on the late edition, the UK's Prime Minister Boris Johnson has said that passenger duty on domestic flights in Britain will be scrapped in order to boost domestic air travel once travel is allowed once again in the UK. Um, Chiara, the British government has said that this will make travel at home a more attractive prospect to boost a sector that's been uh, pummeled during the pandemic. Um, That's including, I suppose, the associated economies around places like the UK's smaller airports, for example, dotted across the country as they are. Um, Environmental groups, however, in the UK have been horrified by this move, haven't they? Yes, and you can understand why, obviously. Though, um, in this specific instance, um, I would like to focus on those routes that do make a difference from a logistical and, you know, practical point of view. Um, For Monocle magazine... A long, long time ago, um, quite a few years ago now, I I wrote a story about a flight that goes from Cardiff to Anglesey and it allows people to commute from Cardiff to Anglesey. This is obviously from South Wales to North Wales. And you would think that that's a completely irrelevant uh, journey, that it's not that far geographically. It's actually a journey that allows people <laughs> to actually make the commute and work and, and bring you know, economic prosperity to a part of North Wales that would not be possible otherwise because the road structure of Wales in itself does not allow for that journey to be made in any kind of sensible amount of time. Um, So I would say that until there isn't, you know, an alternative that makes this feasible for internal mobility in the country, um, there are certain internal routes that do make sense. And those, I think, are important to maintain and potentially also to subsidise. Um, where it doesn't make sense is where there is an alternative and yet, you know, in a way, a, a flight is just the easiest option, which it isn't always necessarily. You know, again, to bring this back to Italy, I think the mobility of the country was completely revolutionised when high-speed rail was... You used to see a lot of people fly from land for a meeting and now that there is a high-speed you know, high service that serves those cities really well, really frequently, really reliably, that's completely obsolete. So, you know, I'm thinking, <laughs> can an infrastructure... Um, project to fix the mobility issues of Wales be, you know, realised in, in, you know, in a realistic time frame, probably not immediately. And equally, can there be services that serve the islands off the coast of Scotland? Probably not. Those flights, I think, you can class as essential. But it's a different kind of conversation that we're having. If it's just a choice for a convenience that's not a real convenience. You know, it's very interesting to hear Chiara talk there about th- those routes um, where where domestic travel is required. And I, I think that's, that's absolutely fair enough. But when it comes to the economic side, um, I think, you know, it, it is a bit of a different debate because some of these routes that, that, that were talked about in a way are about 
kind of like having a public good, uh, aren't they? You know, the, but they're not necessarily about economic viability for an airline. Um, and when it comes to the economic viability side of this, um, you know, airlines are certainly uh, looking much harder in the UK, especially at reviving travel to Europe, you know, to, to obviously to, to, to Greece, to Spain. And in that sense, they're also looking for um, a quicker plan. There's, the, you know, for things like vaccine certificates uh, and passports in order to allow people to travel. Greece has said they will accept them. Spain has said they will accept them. But there isn't really a full plan in place yet about how this is going to happen and how the, this can really get off the ground. And I mean, I think economically speaking, it's those kinds of measures um, that are really going to be key uh, going forward and something that the UK government needs to look to in order to keep airlines propped up. You know, in that sense, um, it's it's just worth saying, you know, the UK is uh, a small country. And so, you know, domestic travel has been very important for some countries during this pandemic uh, Russia, for example, actually, like Aeroflot has only suffered about 70% drop uh, in revenue because it has so many domestic flights that it was able to keep operating. The U.S. also, in that sense, you know, domestic flying hasn't fallen as much as international travel. And so in those cases, um, it has been an important lifeline for airlines. But in the case of the UK, especially the airline industry in general, uh, you know, th this this isn't necessarily a long-term measure for economic viability uh, that's been introduced. That really is going to be much more about vaccine certificates. And for that matter, at some point, you know, when it is safe again and hopefully not too far away, getting uh, away again from this, I'd say personally, this idea of quarantine hotels, which, yes, seemed like a necessary measure for a short period of time when the pandemic is at its most crucial stage, but it's certainly not going to be a way to travel internationally going forward. Well, as someone about to embark on a stay in a quarantine hotel, Chris, I'll certainly send you a postcard and let you know how that goes. Chris Chermak, Monocle's news editor, and Chiara Romella, our culture editor, thank you both, as always, for being with us on the programme today. Today's edition of the programme was edited in London by Steph Chungu and Sam Impey. A big thanks to them, as always, too. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But in the meantime, do be sure to listen to the brand new episode of The Entrepreneurs, Monocle's weekly foray into the worlds of business and entrepreneurship, which premiered here on Monocle 24 a little earlier today. I'm Thomas Lewis. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye.